We've got a telescope, a modern telescope in Southern Arizona, but it's built in collaboration with the University of Arizona. It's one of the uh, premier astronomy groups in the world. And there's now a big lab underneath the football stadium at the University of Arizona where they make the biggest mirrors in the world, 8.4 meters. The what's you know, going to be the largest telescope anywhere, the giant Magellan telescope is going to be made of seven of these mirrors. This is Guy Consolmagno, a research astronomer and physicist. After getting a PhD in planetary science, he taught and researched at Harvard College Observatory and MIT, authored over 40 scientific papers, discovered meteorites in Antarctica, had an asteroid named for him, and received a Carl Sagan medal from the American Astronomical Society for his research on meteors. My own field is meteoritics, and I do a lot of measurements of physical properties of meteorites, and these data are used by scientists around the world. In 2015, he received another distinction. He was named by Pope Francis as the director of the Vatican Observatory. So my actual day-to-day life is either to be a scientist or now as a director to make sure that the other dozen astronomers in our group have the resources they need so that they can do the science. But the other half of it is to make sure that the world sees what we do. Because the Vatican Observatory isn't something that the public necessarily knows about or would even expect to exist. Christianity was hostile even when uh, uh, the scientific worldview was was struggling to be born in, in you know, the, the 16th century mm-hmm. and the 15th century. What, what we have historically is a, war, a real war of ideas. And I mean, I mean just, you know, just you can be crystallized in the moment where, you know, Galileo was shown the instruments of torture and put under ha- house arrest by people who refused to look through his telescope, right? I mean, so that was the genius of religion paired with the, with the emerging genius of science in that room. This is author Sam Harris speaking in 2018 about the confrontation between the astronomer Galileo and the Catholic Church officials of his time. This confrontation has often been taken as emblematic proof of the church's opposition to science. But astronomy for centuries has also been a field of discovery for scientists in the church. Welcome to Illuminations, a limited series from Ministry of Ideas about the complex and captivating relationship of religion and science. I'm Zachary Davis. In this episode, we look at how scientific research has been built into the history of the Catholic Church, sometimes built literally into the churches themselves. We'll also investigate the truth behind the famous story of Galileo and what his condemnation by church authorities does and doesn't tell us about Christianity's view of scientific pursuit. And we learned from practicing scientists of faith why God, in their view, wants us to be scientists. Now, the Vatican Observatory in its current form has been around since the 1890s. It was founded for two reasons then. Here's Guy Consolmagno again. One to show that the Vatican city-state was independent of Italy, and the other was to show that the church was not afraid of science, but it embraced science. Our job is to do good science. The Vatican Observatory itself is only about a century old. But the sort of work that scientists do there goes back many centuries. The Catholic Church required cutting-edge astronomical science in the 1500s in order to create the more accurate Gregorian calendar, 
and establish the correct date of Easter. One of the guys involved in the committee that worked that out was a Jesuit named Christopher Clavius, and he was given the job of writing the book to explain to the rest of the world how the Gregorian calendar works. There continued to be astronomy happening at the Jesuit University in Rome up through the, the suppression of the Jesuits and even after the Jesuits were refounded in the early 1800s. From the 1500s to the 1800s, it wasn't only that members of the Catholic Church were doing scientific research. Churches themselves became an instrument of scientific observation. There's a, a marvelous book uh, by a uh, historian of science, John Hilbrun, and he points out the number of cathedrals that were already built, which in the 17th and 18th century were used to make observations of the sun. And here's how it works. They would put a small hole in the wall on the south wall, and then on the floor, exactly going north and south, they would mark where the spot crossed the meridian, you know, when the sun is at its highest, day by day, and you can plot out the position of the sun over the year. They were measuring the size of the disk of the sun to see if it changed over time in a way that was consistent with circular orbits or elliptical orbits. They were actually making scientific inquiries to try to test whether Kepler was right or Copernicus was right or, you know, Ptolemy was right or Tycho Brahe was right. All these different models for how the planets worked. Here's historian of science, John Heilbrunn. These uh, church observatories were, well, they were, in principle, they sound very simple. The investigator pokes a hole in the roof or in the uh, wall of the church and, uh, makes a line running due north-south on the floor of the church and uh, awaits the sun's image crawling across the church floor, crossing this uh, line. And that marks local noon. So one of the things that the church observatories did was to follow the sun around uh, throughout the year. The church is the instrument. One church in Rome helped lay the foundation literally, for some of the most important astronomical observations of the 19th century. Probably the best example of a telescope in a sacred place is in Rome. Orazio Grassi also designed a church in honor of St. Ignatius, the founder of the Jesuits. And like all Baroque churches, he designed it with a big spectacular dome. And they ran out of money. So the end of the story was they never built the dome. But they had four pillars around the altar to carry the weight of a dome that was never built. Fast forward to 1850, Angelo Secchi says, what a great place to put telescopes. And that's where he built his telescope that you know, looked at solar effects, that, that took spectra of stars, that was powerful enough to see markings on the surface of Mars that he called Canali. This was where modern astronomy began, on the roof of a church. Angelo Secchi, who made these groundbreaking discoveries, was himself a member of the Catholic religious order called the Jesuits. One of the great astronomers of that time in the mid-1800s was a guy named Angelo Secchi, Jesuit priest. Uh, he was the guy who connected solar activity, like sunspots, with the magnetic fields on Earth. Most importantly, he was the first guy to put a prism in the light path of his telescope and then observe not just one or two bright stars, but five 
thousand stars and come up with a classification scheme using their spectra. Because it no longer was where are the stars, but what are stars made out of? And it was the beginning of what astronomers now call the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram and the beginning of astrophysics. He was world-renowned. He won prizes in France. And when he died, the popes recognized that his work was giving a good reputation to the church. So in 1891, Pope Leo XIII said, I'm going to establish a Vatican observatory. And specifically observatory, I think, because of the good reputation of Secchi. Secchi was one of the most accomplished religious scientists, but he was certainly not the only one. The history of science in Europe is populated by hundreds of people from religious orders. Where does new knowledge come from? Ultimately, for the most part, it comes out of the university system. Who invented the universities? The church. Who funded the universities? The church. If you go and look at the scientific volumes, at philosophical transactions of the Royal Society, and you just pick a, a book off the shelf and ask yourself, who is doing the science in 1738? Who's publishing the papers? You find that it's noblemen, medical doctors, and clergymen. Here is Anne Blair, a historian of science at Harvard University. For every Galileo, there are thousands of Jesuits who loved studying astronomy, who mapped the stars in great complexity, and who felt they were honoring God in that natural theological way of being better understanding divine creation, seeing nature as God's handiwork, and as worthy and important to study for that reason, and as furthering their own religious commitment. Devout Christians, in particular monks, were most of the people in the European world who had the time and resources to pursue scientific inquiry in the 1600s. With some exceptions, the financial backing, intellectual training, and institutional support of the Catholic Church were necessary for any kind of research. Modern science arose in a part of the world which was then very thoroughly Christian. And also many of the most, almost all of the great scientists of the 1600s were devout Christians. I'm Stephen Barr. I'm, I just retired, actually, as a uh, physics professor uh, from the University of Delaware. Uh, and spending my retirement running an organization that we founded called the Society of Catholic Scientists. It was founded in uh, 2016, and we're up to 1,300 members at the moment. So it's a lot of work. If you think that the church is anti-science, then it would make no sense for the church to invest in studying science. The fact that the church is doing it means that maybe there is something wrong with those assumptions. And that, at the very beginning, should, should give you pause. But if that's true, how did we wind up with the case that is taken so often to show that the church is anti-science? The case of Galileo. The Galileo story, or a simple version of it, is well known. Galileo used scientific observation and reasoning to prove the then-controversial theory of heliocentrism, the idea that the Earth revolves around the Sun. But the Bible said that the Sun revolved around the Earth, and the Catholic Church could not tolerate any challenge to the Bible's authority. So under threat of torture, the Catholic Inquisition forced Galileo to recant his theories. 
I, I think of Galileo in this back in the 1600s. Uh, he, I guess he jumps on Copernicus's heliocentrism. The next thing you know, he ends up before a Catholic Inquisition <laughs> board. This is Dennis Miller interviewing astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson in 2019. In an online essay two decades back, Tyson had written, quote, History reveals a long and combative relationship between religion and science. We find a leading example in the trial of Galileo. The significance of Galileo's story goes far beyond the fate of one scientist in the 17th century. It represents, in many minds, a long-standing and unchangeable hostility between science and religion. Of course, as you might expect, the actual historical event was much more complex than the short, simple version. But did it add up to the same thing? Proof of religious hostility to science? I think the Galileo affair was not as inevitable as it sometimes seems. An important historical context for Galileo's case was the Counter-Reformation. During the 16th century, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and others challenged the Catholic Church's dominance in Europe and established a series of new Christian communities in a movement known as the Reformation. To reassert traditional Catholic doctrine, the Catholic Church convened a counter-Reformation gathering of high-ranking church officials. They called this the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent was pretty strong about discipline and about uh, certain theological questions, and its fellow organization set up in the 16th century, the Roman Inquisition, was not particularly interested in uh, science. Uh, it uh, wanted to protect uh, the faithful against things like pornography and magic and Protestantism and heresy and things like that. But somehow the question of whether the earth stood still or moved around got uh, involved in these uh, doctrinal questions. It's hard to know what would have happened if the Counter-Reformation hadn't been triggered by the Reformation precisely at the time when Copernicus's heliocentrism was beginning to be appreciated. The Council of Trent was not interested in compromising on the idea that the Catholics were beholden to traditional interpretations of the Bible. And there was no tradition behind a non-literal reading of those passages like Joshua 10:14, where Joshua says, Son, stop in your motion across the sky. The book of Joshua in the Christian Old Testament describes a battle during which God promises divine aid to Joshua. As the book describes, Joshua said, Son, stand thou still. And the sun stood still in the midst of heaven. If the sun stood miraculously still during this battle, then according to the traditional literal interpretation, the sun must be in motion around the earth. Catholicism had always appreciated non-literal readings of the Bible. There are plenty of them. But the problem is that this idea of the motion of the earth was not something that was floated at the time of the church fathers. And if there had been a church father who had offered a non-literal reading of Joshua 10, 14, I think things would have been fine, right? That was enough. One authority would have been enough to uh, appreciate that you could read that passage non-literally, just as you read many other passages non-literally. So there was a there was a, a an unfortunate timing there that that the you know the reception of heliocentrism coincided with a moment when the Catholic Church was in retrenchment and very worried about letting go of an insistence on traditional interpretation. The Catholic Church was still in this retrenchment mode 
when Galileo began publishing his research. Galileo Galilei was an Italian astronomer. In 1610, he published a work called Sidereus Nuncius, meaning starry messenger, describing what he had observed with an exciting, brand new scientific instrument, the telescope. Based on his observations, Galileo supported the heliocentric theory proposed by Nicholas Copernicus in the 1530s, the idea that the Earth revolves around the sun. We know now that Galileo's sun-centered theory is correct, but in 1616, the Inquisition of the Catholic Church declared that the heliocentric theory was, quote, formally heretical since it explicitly contradicts in many places the sense of Holy Scripture. In 1615-16, charges were brought against Copernican theory, and it was decided by a committee that was set up by the Vatican, by the Pope, uh, that the doctrine that the earth moved was uh, rash in theology and philosophically absurd. And so that was declared not against Galileo, who was admonished not to teach the system anymore, the Catholic Church demanded that Galileo stop teaching or discussing his new theory. But, apparently unable to restrain himself, in 1632, he published Dialogue Concerning the Two Chief World Systems. The book takes the form of a conversation between three scientists, two clever ones and one foolish one, called Simplicio. Simplicio defends the traditional theory that the sun revolves around the earth. The two clever scientists ridicule him and refute his arguments, so that the book as a whole seemed to support Galileo's heliocentric theory. Pope John Urban VII was outraged by Galileo's flagrant disobedience. Sales of the book were banned, and Galileo was brought to trial before the Inquisition on suspicion of heresy. He was found guilty and sentenced to house arrest. Galileo subsequently gave a statement rejecting all his errors that went contrary to the church. It does seem a simple story of a religious authority using its power to silence voices it doesn't like. But actually, it's not that simple. We don't actually know why Galileo met this fate. Galileo publishes his stuff in you know, around 1610, and most of that time, He's got friends and churchmen. You know, he's got popes who support him. The last mystery is after 20 years, why was it that, you know, in 1632, after his book has been out for two years, it had been approved by the church. And then in 1632, suddenly he finds himself in trouble for saying the same thing that had been approved two years earlier. And the answer to that, any historian will tell you is, we don't know. And that's why we can have dozens, hundreds of books about Galileo, everyone with a different take. Maybe uh, Pope Urban thought that he was being made fun of in the book. Probably he was. Maybe there were political, you know, implications of trying to put pressure on the Medici family because they were worried about their involvement in the Thirty Years' War, which was coming to a climax just at the time of the Galileo trial. What further complicates the science at stake is that while Galileo's overall argument was correct, the Earth does revolve around the Sun, some of the evidence Galileo presented didn't actually support that argument. In the long run, you know, Galileo was right. His arguments turn out to be wrong. 
He has arguments based on the nature of tides. He doesn't understand tides. He's got arguments based on observations of, of tiny stars next to each other that he says, if you just look at a bright star and a tiny star next to each other, you will be able to see this motion. It didn't show what he was looking for, and maybe that's not just a coincidence. Maybe there were real scientific arguments against the Copernican system that they knew he couldn't answer, and therefore they're trying to say, like a good referee, look, we can't let you publish this stuff until you get your arguments right. We know there was opposition on scientific grounds. We don't know what role that played in Galileo's trial. We know there was opposition on political grounds and on personal grounds. The trouble is, none of these people wrote down what their real arguments were. And at the end of the day, you realize that uh, they're not talking about the science there. They're talking about politics. The real crime of the church was not that it was anti-science. It was that for whatever these reasons were, it was political or it was personal or it was financial, whatever, there were not religious reasons and they used religious authority for things that were not religious questions. And that's wrong. And that's always going to be wrong. In the 20th century, Pope John Paul II sought to acknowledge those wrongs. The error of the theologians of Galileo's time was to think that our understanding of the physical world structure was, in some way, imposed by the literal sense of the sacred scripture. This is from an address he gave in 1979 to commemorate a hundred years since the birth of Albert Einstein. The greatness of Galileo is known to everyone, like that of Einstein, but unlike the latter, the former had to suffer a great deal at the hands of the church. I hope that theologians, scholars, and historians will study the Galileo case more deeply, and, in loyal recognition of wrongs from whatever side they come, will dispel the mistrust that still opposes, in many minds, a fruitful concord between science and faith. The Pope later commissioned a research team to study the history of the Galileo affair. In 1992, the commission completed its work, and John Paul II spoke on Galileo's case again. Galileo, he said, was a sincere believer who showed himself to be more perceptive than the theologians who opposed him because he recognized that while the Bible cannot be an error, human interpreters can. John Paul II lamented what the Galileo affair has come to be. A sort of myth, the symbol of the church's supposed rejection of scientific progress. A tragic mutual incomprehension has been interpreted as a fundamental opposition between science and faith. Brother Guy Consolmagno has seen how belief persists in this fundamental opposition. Uh, you know, I remember talking to a young student who wanted to be uh, a geologist. And he was from South Carolina. He was going to college at Charleston. And he said to me, what do I tell my mom? With this idea persisting that religion is opposed to science, members of religious communities can easily come to believe that science is also opposed to religion and that it's dangerous to pursue. It's a shame if we don't have a bright kid who could have been doing science, not doing science. The, the warfare picture of science really comes from a misunderstanding of both science and religion. Yeah, I have had students come to me saying, well, you know, religion is just going to decline and be replaced by science. And I just don't see that happening. The religious impulse in humans is deep-seated and at different phases of life, People may have different attitudes toward the spiritual element, but in most lives, it surfaces. And whether it's an organized religion or an internal, you know, personal spiritual drive, um, I just don't see religion disappearing. So religion and science 
have to live together. And they have, in fact, lived together and often very productively. And it is certainly possible in principle that something that is believed to be revealed by God and something that is believed to be have been discovered by science could be in conflict with each other. Now, of course, for a Catholic, we believe that they can't really conflict because to use a favorite idea of, of Galileo, which actually goes back to St. Augustine, he borrowed it from St. Augustine in the fifth century, uh, is that God wrote two books. There's the book of, of, of the Bible and there's the book of nature. And as they have the same author, they can't be in con uh, conflict. Actually, in my life, I have never encountered a moment where my religion said one thing and my science said something else. But all the time in my scientific life, I run into cases where my science said one thing, but then it also said something that contradicted the first thing. And when that happens, I don't throw up my hands and abandon science. I get really excited because this tells me that what I thought I understood was incomplete, and here's something new to learn. So what should we take away from the Galileo story? Not that the church was blameless. As Pope John Paul II expressed, the church can make mistakes. Biblical interpreters at the time made a mistake when they insisted that scripture supported an earth-centered worldview. And church officials made an even more serious mistake when they used their religious authority and power to issue a verdict on something it wasn't ultimately a matter of salvation. But neither does the story mean that the Catholic Church was fundamentally opposed to science, still less that there's an inherent opposition between religion and science. The story does remind us that there aren't abstract entities in the world called religion and science, independently moving things around. There are religious people. There are scientifically-minded people. And in their pursuits, they carry with them the flaws that all human beings are subject to. But by the same token, it's possible for there to be people who are devoted to science and to a religious faith, and to demonstrate in their lives the kind of harmony and mutual support that can exist between them. In the fundamental documents of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, including, you know, chapter one of Genesis, is the sense that the universe was created by God, the universe is good, and God's command, the whole climax of the seven days of creation, is the seventh day. To spend your time not doing the things that's going to fill your uh, belly, but to look at creation and God's creation and contemplate God in creation. In other words, we are made to be scientists. We teach science as if it's getting the answers in the back of the book. We teach science as if it's trying to memorize facts. And if the facts in the science book don't agree with the facts in the religion book, then you've got to make a choice. But science isn't a book of facts. It's a book of questions. And religion isn't a book of facts. It's a book of questions. We will never, ever come to the end of questions we have about God and the nature of God, and how we fit in with God. And if you think you've got it understood, you're wrong. Just as if you think you understand quantum physics, you're wrong. <laughs> it's something that we know there is a reality deeper than our common sense, and the joy is experiencing this reality enough to be able to say, ah, it's something like this. As a practicing scientist, 
Guy Consolmagno knows perhaps better than anyone how science reveals more questions, more unknowns, in the pursuit of full understanding. That unquenchable thirst to discover more, to see more of the truth, is a desire the scientist and the faithful can share. My religion tells me God made the universe. My science tells me how he did it. But more than that, my religion gives me the confidence that the universe is worth studying, it's good, that it is logical, even as I'm trying to puzzle out the logic, but it's actually done to a plan, and that the things where I find God, which are places of love and beauty and contentment, are great compasses for where I can find truth in science. A scientific theory, if it's going to be fruitful, will probably be beautiful, elegant, and draw me into a deeper understanding than I would have even known was possible before. And in that sense, discovering truth in science is an act of prayer. It's bringing me closer to God. This episode was produced by Samantha Worcester. Illuminations is a limited series from Ministry of Ideas. We are supported by Harvard Divinity School and the John Templeton Foundation. Illuminations is produced by me, Zachary Davis, Leah Rechtman, Maria Devlin-McNair, and Nick Anderson. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. Sound design and music is by Steve LaRosa. And artwork is by Dan Pecci. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support us by sharing the show with your friends, subscribing, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to get in touch, visit our website at ministryofideas.org. Ministry of Ideas is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a collective of carefully crafted, idea-driven podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at hubspokeaudio.org. I'd like to invite you to listen to the Hub & Spoke show called Rumble Strip. Hosted by Erica Heilman, Rumble Strip is a beautiful, brilliant show about human stories that might just change you for the better. Learn more and listen at rumblestripvermont.com. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.